Imagine a scenario where you're in the mood for a true crime podcast. You take out your headphones and press play on the first recommendation. You're excited to delve into an eerie and chilling case. Is someone missing? Is there a conspiracy about to be uncovered? As you listen to the beginning, you're met with a startling surprise. The podcast sucks. And now imagine that you're listening to a different podcast, one that exceeds your expectations. The storytelling is well done. The details are thoroughly researched. The music is chilling and unsettling. And then there's the best part. You get to listen to my deep and creepy voice. When you listen to Still Unsolved, you get to join us as we bring the true crime genre back to its roots. Every week, we highlight different cases of missing persons, wanted felons, unsolved murders, and the truly bizarre occurrences of life. Subscribe to Still Unsolved wherever you like to listen to your podcasts and join us. With your help, some of these cases may no longer be an unsolved mystery. You're listening to True Crime Feed. on the docket. I have a show from the archives I think you will really enjoy, but there is so much meat on this bone that I'm going to have to chop it up and serve it into two parts. Let's discuss the first three episodes of Unraveled Season 3, Experts on Trial. Here's a synopsis from the show page. Unraveled Experts on Trial investigates an alarming problem within the American criminal justice process the business of forensic experts. It is a crisis in the courts that is decades in the making. Citing several cases as examples, Alexis Linkletter and Billy Jensen expose serious flaws with forensic expert testimony that routinely leads to tragedy and injustice within the U.S. court system. This show will leave you hoping that you are never accused of a crime that an expert says you committed. And as always, to take your listening to the next level, go to the truecrimefeed.com and sign up for my newsletter where I curate visual aids to accompany the show. Key players are hosts Billy Jensen and Alexis Linkletter. I also have photos of some of the people wrongfully convicted of crimes and the experts who put them there. Okay, I just, I can't even help myself. Before we get going, I have the funnest fact that has nothing to do with today's topic, but it just tickles me. So, Co-host Alexis Linkletter's great-grandfather was Art Linkletter. He hosted a popular daytime variety show in Hollywood back in the late 50s, early 60s. And then during that time, in my home state of Maine, there was a gal named Annie Wilkinson. After getting a terminal cancer diagnosis at the age of 63 and facing her own mortality, Annie decided to do something extraordinary. So she hopped on her mule named Tarzan, and along with her little dog, Depeche Trois, Annie journeyed 7,000 miles to California. It took her 16 months. She made friends and headlines all along the way. 
And when she finally reached California, she was invited on to the Art Linkletter Show to share her extraordinary journey. Folks gave her the beloved nickname Jackass Annie, and she lived for another 20 years. Jackass Annie is a main folk hero legend, and you can read more about her in a book titled The Ride of Her Life. It's a nifty little fun fact you can stick in your back pocket. Okay, and the other co-host, Billy Jensen, he wrote a book, Chase Darkness With Me, How One True Crime Writer Started Solving Murders. Last I saw, the audiobook is still available for free for Audible members. It's a solid B-grade read. I really appreciate the code of ethics Billy lays out for amateur web sleuths. But I actually think the work he does with Alexis on this podcast, Unraveled, is his best work to date. This series covers a new topic every season. Some seasons are anthology and some are serialized. I will cover another season down the road in a future episode, but season three, Experts on Trial, is a standout. Once you listen to this series, you will never be able to look at true crime the same way again. So without further ado, let's get unraveled. The series opens with the tragic case of David Cam. He was a former Indiana State Trooper, and back in the year 2000, David arrived home from playing basketball with friends to discover his wife and two children had been shot in their garage. He could tell immediately his wife and daughter were dead, but he saw signs of life in his son and did everything he could to revive him. But it was too late. All three were dead, and David was left surrounded by this horrific bloody scene. And this was only just the beginning of his nightmare. A triple homicide is a big case for this small Indiana police department to handle. So they call on the big guns for help. First, they call in crime scene deconstructionist and frequent talking head pundit on true crime docuseries, Rod Englart. He was not available to investigate this case, so he sends his protege, Rob Stites. Stites arrives on the scene and begins taking photos. He immediately remarks that there appeared to be high-velocity impact spatter on the shirt that David Cam had been wearing. Oh, and in addition to this, quote, incriminating evidence, the cops also found out that David had a history of infidelity which police conclude was a motive for him to kill. Because no police officer has ever cheated on their spouse before. So, four days after the murder of his wife and two children, David Cam is charged with their slaying. In 2002, he goes on trial. Y'all, I am so confused by the prosecution's theory of this case. They posit that David Cam went to play a few games of pickup basketball, he leaves during one of the games and kills his family, then returns to the b-ball court without anyone having noticed him leave, no blood stains, nothing disheveled, out of place, no changes to his behavior, no double dribbling, nothing but net. Then returns back home to fake discover his dead wife and kids and make a dramatic 911 call, I guess. Which means in addition to being a triple murderer, they also think he's a better actor than Indiana's own Brendan Fraser? Yeah, probably not enough to sway the jury. But then TV famous blood spatter pundit Rod Englart steps up to testify against David Cam. He expands on his protege Rob Stites' interpretation of the blood evidence. 
On the witness stand, Engler dramatically deciphered the eight drops of blood on the sweatshirt that David was wearing at the crime scene. He does some theatric storytelling and concludes based on the pattern that these were high-velocity impact blood drops and that they absolutely, without a doubt, prove David must have been present when the gun was fired to leave these particular distinct marks. After that, the prosecution parades some ladies up onto the stand to testify that David was a cheater. I can't believe the judge allowed this. It has nothing to do with the case. I understand that court can be soups boring and this would be a juicy, entertaining change of pace. But save it for divorce court, judge, and keep it in your pants. For his defense, David has multiple alibi witnesses from his basketball game testify that he was on the courts during the time the murders took place. The defense team also had their own blood spatter expert contradict the prosecution's expert. He's a highly credentialed scientist named Bart Epstein, who demonstrated that these blood patterns could have easily been made via transfer when David was performing CPR on his son. And they were not consistent with high-velocity impact spatter. Epstein further notes that he's never seen high-velocity impact spatter leave behind only eight droplets of blood of that large size. Usually, it's many more small droplets in a spray pattern. Also, 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 there was foreign male DNA found on a random sweatshirt that had been discovered at the crime scene. More on that later. Though more scientifically accurate, Epstein's expert testimony just wasn't theatrical enough for the judge or jury. And unfortunately, you know where this is going. David is convicted of murdering his wife and children. He immediately files for an appeal. Miraculously, he is granted a new trial. And his defense team submits some new evidence that should prove without a doubt David is innocent. Okay, so back when the original crime scene unit was busy photographing, deciphering blood spatter, and feigning shock that anyone would ever cheat on their wives, they failed to notice a crumpled up sweatshirt in the corner of the garage. They test the sweatshirt and find Kim Cam, the deceased wife of David's DNA, present, along with the DNA of Charles Bonet. Honestly, though, they could have saved themselves a lot of time and money getting this sweatshirt tested because it had Charles Bonet's nickname, Backbone, written on the inside collar, along with his Department of Corrections issued number on the tag. Charles Backbone Bonet was a convicted felon from the next town over. He was out on parole after having served time for committing a series of armed attacks on women. He apparently had a foot fetish and notably at the crime scene in the midst of this awful bloody massacre that took place in this garage, Kim Cam's shoes had been removed and were sitting neatly arranged on top of her car. So that settles it, right? The defense clearly has proven that Charles Bonet was present at the crime scene. There's no possible way a reasonable jury could convict David Cam again, right? Okay, 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 you guys, this is crazy. I can't believe what happens next. Here's the prosecution's new theory. They admit that yes, old Charles Backbone Bonet was present at the crime scene, and yes, he happens to have a history of attacking women at gunpoint as they are getting out of their cars so he can steal their shoes, but 
He couldn't have acted alone on this one based on the blood spatter evidence. David still must have been there too. So a reasonable person should conclude that these two must have worked together, okay? Even though there was absolutely no evidence that David Cam and Charles Bonet ever met, no phone records, no money exchange, nothing showing any connection whatsoever, just the blood spatter evidence that was laid out by the quote experts. Y'all, David Cam gets convicted again. There is another appeal, and this time word has gotten out that one of the expert witnesses for the prosecution, Rob Stites, had been lying about his bona fides. He had cited a long list of his credentials and experience that all turned out to be false. He had perjured himself in the first two trials, but he faced no punishment. So the third trial falls apart for the prosecution, and David Cam is exonerated. That's when you hear, in my opinion, one of the most shocking parts of the entire Unraveled series. They have on tape the prosecutor who argued this case, Stan Levko, doubling down on the validity of the blood spatter evidence in spite of all of this new information. That's around minute 29 of Unraveled Season 3, Episode 1. This is a man who is tasked to represent the state uphold the law he continues to assert this man's guilt oh i think i'm gonna puke side note here's a helpful little life hack if you ever find yourself accidentally ingesting a shellacked caramel off an old christmas tree ornament and you need to make yourself purge anyone anyone well if you ever find yourself in that particular predicament simply play this recording of prosecutor's damn levko continuing to tout david's guilt because of the blood pattern evidence It is truly some next-level, revolting audio. But wait, there's more. Next, we examine the case of Johnny Wall. He is put on trial for the murder of his ex-wife, Uta von Schwedler. This case pitted blood pattern expert against blood pattern expert. It was a blood sport more thrilling than Jean-Claude Van Damme versus an elementary school kickball team. Isn't that what the movie Bloodsport was about? Well, anyway, similar to any JCVD film, only one of these blood experts was putting up a fair fight. So, a little backstory on the death of Uda. She was found unresponsive in her bathtub that was filled with cold water. They found a kitchen knife next to her, along with a family scrapbook. She had superficial knife wounds on her leg and wrist and it was later discovered that Uda had twice the therapeutic level of Xanax in her system. The medical examiner determined her cause of death to be drowning, but labeled the manner of death undetermined. The case required further investigation before they could conclude if this had been an accident, a suicide, or a homicide. I don't know enough about this case to say whether I think that Johnny Wall killed Uta von Schwedler or not, He was acting pretty sus after her death and gives some pretty weird answers when being interrogated by the police, but the only, quote, direct evidence against him is the blood spatter. And that's, of course, depending who you ask. So let's switch it up and hear from the defense first this time. They claim that Johnny was nowhere near the property when Uda died and that no crime occurred at all. Uda most likely was depressed, and after taking far too much Xanax, she was in a delusional state, 
first self-inflicting the knife wounds and then unintentionally drowning. The defense called their blood spatter expert witness Anita Zanin to the stand. And unlike your boy Rob Stites from the first trial, Anita actually went to school for forensic science and criminal justice. She makes a concerted effort to leave her bias at the door when she testifies. There had been a trail of blood found at this crime scene that started in Uta's bedroom and led to the tub. Anita testifies that the blood pattern appeared to be passive, meaning it looks as though the blood was dripping in an uninterrupted line from the bedroom to the bathroom. This is consistent with someone having a cut and then walking to the other room as they are actively bleeding. That's pretty much all Anita was willing to infer based on the blood pattern. However, the expert witness for the prosecution was able to interpret a dramatic and detailed story of the crime that completely contradicts Anita Zanin's findings. And look, he's someone we know. The blood pattern expert for the prosecution's case was old Hot Rod Angler. He took a break from filming an episode of Forensic Files to come to court. And buckle up, y'all, because Hot Rod Anglard is going to take you on a wild ride. He claims that Johnny Wall surprised attacked Uda and force-fed her the Xanax. How? Well, gosh, he must have crushed up the pills and mixed them with alcohol. You know, based on the blood pattern evidence. Then Hot Rod claims there must have been a violent struggle on the bed, because even though only Uta's blood was found on the comforter, you can tell more than one person had been there, based on the pattern. Uta fought back until the Xanax she was force-fed kicked in and she couldn't fight anymore. That's when Johnny must have drowned her. Yeah, that's what Rod Englart claims he was able to determine just based on the blood patterns. Isn't that unbelievable? Especially when you consider there were no injuries on Uta's body suggesting someone restrained her in order to force-feed her Xanax. What's even more unbelievable is that based on this evidence, the jury found Johnny Wall guilty of murder. We even get to hear from one of the jurors from the trial. He felt like defense expert Anita Zanin didn't paint as clear a picture of the crime scene the way prosecution expert Rod Englart did. Plus, she used big scientific vocabulary words. Boring. Hot Rod presented a clear, easy-to-follow story connecting all the blood dots. He credits Rod's testimony for swaying the jury of John Wall's guilt. To this day, he remains in prison, serving a 15-year-to-life sentence. Are you coming unraveled yet? Yeah, me too. Co-host Alexis Linkletter is also getting unraveled at this point. Like us, she is baffled that a majority of blood pattern expert Rod Englert's testimony had nothing to do with blood evidence at all. Yet, even though he may have overstepped his expertise and some would argue ethical boundaries, everything Rod did was technically legal under our current judicial system. And Rod is far more credentialed than some of the other quote experts we will soon encounter. I think this next case is the most rage-inducing Captain Insano one yet. It's the case of Brad Jennings and the dubious blood evidence that put him in jail for nearly a decade. His story begins on Christmas Day 2006. 
Brad finds his wife Lisa shot dead on their bedroom floor. He rushes to her body and holds her in his arms. It appears she died from a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head. Initial investigations conclude that this was a suicide based on the evidence that Lisa had over a 0.1 blood alcohol level in her system, a previous suicide attempt, and most importantly, gunshot residue on her dominant hand. It's tragic, but everyone is in agreement that this is what happened. Everyone except Lisa's sister. She can't accept that Lisa killed herself. So she contacts the state police department and is randomly assigned to highway patrolman Dan Nash. Nash looks at a single photograph of the crime scene and spots a microscopic drop of blood on Brad's bathrobe. And from this, Dan Nash concludes that Brad shot and killed his wife, Lisa. He goes to trial and gets assigned a crummy defense lawyer who makes no opening argument and calls no witnesses. The prosecution calls Dan Nash as a cough expert witness. He argued that even though Lisa had gunshot residue on her hand and husband Brad had no gunshot residue on himself or bathrobe in question, Lisa should have had more blood spatter on her firing hand, not just gunshot residue. And this is enough to convince a jury of Brad's guilt. Thankfully, he acquires a new defense team and is granted an appeal. But surprisingly, it's actually an expert from the Missouri State's office that lays out the most compelling evidence to contradict Dan Nash's testimony and exonerate Brad Jennings. This blood pattern expert demonstrated that a majority of suicides by gunshot leave no detectable traces of blood or tissue behind on the victim's shooting hand. What in the Jean-Claude Van Damme nation is going on around here? Seriously though, a guy almost does life in prison because a state trooper takes a stand and touts completely inaccurate blood evidence. How in the world was he qualified to give an expert opinion? Glad you asked. That's all thanks to a little something special called Rule of Evidence 702. I'm not going to bore you with the full legal definition, but basically anyone who has a greater than average knowledge on a subject can take the stand as an expert. This can be as little education as a 40-hour course on a forensic topic, or you work in a profession that is deemed worthy enough to make you an authority. At the time he testified in the murder trial of Brad Jennings, Dan Nash had zero training in blood pattern analysis. His only, quote, qualification was that he was a police officer. I'm becoming completely unraveled! There is virtually no screening process or mechanisms in place to set standards for expert testimony. Yeah, the opposing attorney is the only person really set up to check and question the credentials. If they don't object to an expert taking the stand, their jury will hear their testimony whether it is factual or not. And this does not only apply to blood spatter experts. This applies to a whole wide world of pseudosciences and forensics with unsettlingly high error rates. And we will open those horrifying doors in part two of our discussion of Unraveled Season 3 next week. 
Yeah, believe it or not, this goes even deeper and darker, and it will forever ruin that show Forensic Files for you. But I hate to just leave you here with all this depressing info and be all complainy pants about how forked up our judicial system is. I want to do something positive and be part of the solution. Let's create some new job opportunities for these wannabe experts, starting with the phony blood pattern specialists we heard about in today's episode. So first, let's examine their strengths. These guys love looking at drops of gross fluids. They also had a flair for imaginative storytelling. So which op could they use this special skill set for that would be more beneficial to society than, you know, ruining people's lives on the witness stand? Hmm. Okay, I got it. I got it. Job opportunity number one. Let's promote these guys to bird guano fortune tellers. Here's how it works. The next time a bird scats on your car, instead of getting bummed out, call your local bird guano expert to come out, decipher the unique excreta patterns, and determine your fortune based on their professional expert opinion. It's a win-win. I recently called my local bird guano fortune teller after a seagull scattered on my windshield, and this guy told me he saw a Peabody Award in my future for my exceptional true crime reporting. And I, for one, trust his credentials. Yeah, we made it through part one of Unraveled Season 3, Experts on Trial. I have a fun little homework assignment for us that we can share next time. I want you to think of what imaginary theoretical 40-hour course you would want to take to qualify you to be a quote expert in a criminal trial. I'll think of one too and share my favorite answers on next week's show. You can email me directly at Angela at the truecrimefeed.com or join the True Crime Feed Facebook discussion group. Keep an open mind and be kind to fellow True Crime Feed friends. Stay tuned till after the break to hear my top three podcast power ranking of the week. Ah, <sighs> hey you. I'm so glad we found each other and get to share our special love for true crime podcasts. I don't ever want you to miss out on a wild story. That would be a crime in itself. So be sure to hit that follow or subscribe button on your podcast app and share your favorite episode with a friend so the next time you see each other, you can splurge about your latest true crime obsession. Thanks for spreading the word. And now back to the show. And we're back. Before we begin the ranking, I want to share my feelings about the King Road Killings podcast. I can't wait for new episodes to drop because the story is mesmerizing, but the reporting is weak. Like having seafood Alfredo served on a paper plate. It's not in my top three, but I am addicted to this podcast. And with that, let's get to the official ranking. Here are the three shows currently trending that I think are worth a listen. I present to you this week's podcast power ranking. At the number three spot, we once again have Undercover of Night. Here's a rundown from the show. In 1996, Sue Knight was found dead in her Athens, Texas home. Her will named a loose acquaintance as the executor of her estate. But after an alleged phone call from the CIA and a dire warning from the local sheriff, 
the executor stopped asking questions. More than 25 years later, Sue's memory haunts the town of Athens and the people who knew her. Who was Sue really? Why did this English expat settle in small town Texas? And could she still be alive? This show is presented so different from any other true crime podcast I've heard. It's basically being told directly from the subjects themselves without much narration. And I think it's a really innovative way to build the show. But this format is not going to be for everyone. And you're going to know right away when you hear the executor start talking if you like it or not. He loves to talk and he has a big personality. If you connect with this guy, you'll probably be hooked on Undercover of Night. At the number two spot, back on the ranking, we have Scamanda. Here's a refresher. Amanda is a wife, a mother, a blogger, a Christian, a charming, beautiful, bubbly young woman who lives life to the fullest. But Amanda is dying with a secret she doesn't want anyone to know. She starts a blog detailing her cancer journey and becomes an inspiration touching and captivating her local community as well as followers all over the world. Until one day, investigative producer Nancy gets an anonymous tip telling her to look at Amanda's blog, setting Nancy on an unimaginable road to uncover Amanda's secret. Yep, your girl is back in my number two spot. It was off my list for a week because some of the middle episodes were feeling extra padded, but episode number six titled High as Hell delivered on the goods, y'all. I am back on the Scamanda roller coaster ride anticipating a big vertical drop in the coming episode. And at the number one spot, we have Freeway Phantom. Here's a synopsis from the show. Between 1971 and 1972, six black girls went missing in the Washington, D.C. area. Their bodies were discarded alongside D.C. freeways, and their killer was never found. The media dubbed him the Freeway Phantom. This is so sad, but so good, you guys. I can't believe how many voices you get to hear that had a direct connection to this case. You even hear from someone who was nearly abducted as a little girl by the person who very likely could have been the Freeway Phantom. It's an incredible series. The overarching feeling I have listening is that even though this case is over 50 years old, so much has remained the same. I want this story to explode and be covered everywhere. Documentaries, scripted series, get it in front of as many people as possible. These little girls deserve justice and their stories need to be heard. So I'm going to rally hard for the podcast, Freeway Phantom, and I hope you will too. Now for my miss of the week. We have Lost Hill Season 3, The Dark Prince. Here's a rundown from the show. Lost Hills investigates the dark side of Malibu, California. Beneath a seductive facade, the city of billionaires, celebrities, and surf bums is hiding something menacing. Season 3 takes a deep dive into the surf world to explore the legacy of Malibu's dark prince, Miki Dora, a surfer known for his style, 
grace, and aggression. He ruled Malibu from the 1950s to the 1970s. Celebrated for his rebellious spirit, he was also a con man who led the FBI on a seven-year manhunt around the world, all while he was in search of the perfect wave. To many, he's a hero. But there's an evil undercurrent that runs through the surf world, and it all leads back to Miki Dora. Okay, this is a miss because of its presentation and its pacing. I love the journalist, and I think the story itself has potential to be awesome, but the two do not work together. I have really enjoyed some of host Dana Goodyear's previous work, her food writing especially, and I even thought her first season of Lost Hills was decent, but this season does not have a cohesive flow. Dana Goodyear gives off strong public radio vibes, and she's covering the dark, gritty underbelly of old-school surfing culture. I'm getting whiplash with the back-and-forth tone of the show. So even though I think Dana is an incredibly talented writer and reporter, I have officially lost it on this season of Lost Hills, and I'm going to have to send it down my podcast queue trapdoor. Find out next week if Freeway Phantom will stay in the number one spot as the series continues or if another show will take its place. Let me know what trending shows are in your top three and what show fell through your podcast queue, Trapdoor. I'll meet you back here next week to finish part two of Unraveled Season 3 Experts on Trial for your next feeding fix. today's true crime feed. Don't forget to sign up for my weekly newsletter where I post links to my top three favorite shows of the week and bring you fantastic visual aids for every episode. And be sure to follow the show on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to join the conversation. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review and tell your fellow partners in crime to listen to true crime feed. Thanks for riding along and allowing me to be your audio accomplice. Join me next week for another feeding.